We read Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses, as background to the message tonight in which I endeavor to complete the Sermon on Spiritual Growth, which we began last Lord's Day evening, or last Lord's Day. And now I want again to direct your attention to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. We are considering the doctrine of spiritual growth, a sure sign of true conversion. Apparently, there was much encouragement received among you last week when you heard that message. It is my trust that the same will occur tonight as well as a spur to egg us on, as it were, to pursuing him whom our souls love with more vigor and diligence and zeal. It perhaps is characteristic of our nature that the more we get, the less we appreciate it and the less we seek it. The less we have, the more we desire to have it. It seems that it's that way in the world of nature as well as in the world of grace. In America, we have plenty of this world, and we take it for granted. We waste enough every year to feed multitudes and to supply needs across the world. It seems to be the same in the realm of the Spirit. We're so enriched with the Word of God. If we are in our cars, we can hear it on tape. We can carry it with us home. We don't have to wait till we till the circuit rider comes around every four to eight weeks to preach once to us and then hope we can remember some tidbits of the sermon to tell our children. We have no lack of books and hymnals and all sorts of means to enrich ourselves with the Word of God. And yet when we come to hear it preached in the context of a people who love the truth, we seem to be so hard to pull out of our lethargy and to sit on the edge of our spiritual seats to beg for more and to drink it in. And I believe it's no small reason that because we are so accustomed to having it, we assume it'll always be there so that when we're finally desperate for it, we can grab it uh, as we would ripened figs on a tree. But I know that my Bible opposes such a view, and the doctrine of Christian life and sanctification would teach us otherwise. It is an absolute necessity for us to give ourselves to growing, going beyond where we are and reaching for more, lest we perish. So please follow again, as I read in your hearing, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, verse 17 and 18. Now, as you recall, he has been dealing with the coming of Christ, the certain day of judgment upon the return of Christ, And he has described that day as a day in which everything in the universe will burn up and melt with a fervent heat. And all that man hope in will be dissolved. And all that will be left is man's souls in the presence of their maker and their judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 17 he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing these things beforehand... Beware, lest being carried away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. Now, that's the, that's the danger on the one hand, falling from our steadfastness. And he's not speaking merely to the fringe in the church. He's addressing himself to those who see themselves firmly entrenched in the faith lest you fall from your own steadfastness. That's the danger. That's the warning. And then verse 18, the preventive. How you keep from doing it. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray again, please. Our Father, it is our desire to acknowledge before your people 
publicly in your presence our utter inadequacy to uncover and open up your holy word. And yet we hope in you and believe in your grace that you will help us, O Lord, for you have promised that to those who ask you would give good things and that to those who tremble at your word you would look with favor and that you would be pleased to dwell with them and to help them. Lord, you know our hearts, how we know our inadequacy for this hour. And you know our hearts, how we know that you are able to deliver us and our souls as we preach to your people. So we cry to you and ask for liberty of heart and speech to the one whom you've brought to this moment to preach to these. And we pray that your Holy Spirit may minister to their hearts, that they may receive your word with great care and diligence, and that it may bear fruit in them unto everlasting life. O God who loves us, come near now in the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now last Lord's Day we preach to you on the subject of spiritual growth, a sure sign of true conversion, and sought to uncover this subject under four headings. The first was the essence and the object of spiritual growth, and it simply was an increased conformity to the image of Christ himself. We are to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. The goal of our growth is to be like Jesus. It is the goal of God in His electing us. It is the goal of God in calling us. We are called into the fellowship of His Son. We were chosen in Him that we should be without blame before Him. We were predestinated to be conformed to His image. And so the object and the essence of our growth is increased conformity to Christ. We also noted the importance in the second place of spiritual growth. And that importance is seen in the fact that we are commanded to do so. We are commanded to grow spiritually. Why would God give us a command to grow if it weren't so urgent? And then we worked that out to see several of the reasons that we're commanded to grow, hence the importance for spiritual growth, and namely we are to avoid by growing in grace our apostasy. We escape apostasy by growth in grace. And also, if we grow in grace, we shall live and not perish. If we do not grow, we will not live. In fact, the failure to grow is proof that we're not alive. Then we were taught that it is important for us to grow because we have so far to go before we are like our Savior. It is not enough to have been converted. We are not reaching the goal of God's saving purpose and work if we can point back merely to an experience of conversion that we had. And even we who have been much further along than simple conversion must confess that our standard laid along beside Christ's standard is a great disparity. The fullness of Christ for which we long is a long way in our spiritual future. And so we are commanded to grow. There's a long way to go. And then finally we noted that it is an important thing that we grow because Our very safety at the judgment day is dependent upon it. If we do not grow, we'll not be prepared for the day in which the elements melt with a fervent heat. If we do not grow in grace, we will fall from our own steadfastness, we'll slip in the error of the wicked, and be with the wicked when the sheep and the goats are separated at the last day. Then in the third place, after looking at the essence and object of our growth, the importance of it, we observed some of the characteristics of spiritual growth. Among them were these. Spiritual growth is rooted in union with Christ. Second, spiritual growth is slow. Though it may have times of spurts of growth, generally speaking, it's a slow process 
for which reason many grow weary in well-doing and grow impatient and leave their profession. It not only, though, is rooted in union with Christ and slow, but true spiritual growth is lasting. It endures unto everlasting life. Fruit is born. The light of the righteous increases more and more unto the perfect day. And finally, spiritual growth's characteristics not only include the fact that it is rooted in union with Christ, that it is slow, generally speaking, and that it is lasting, but also it's motivated by love for God. And that principle is one we did not mention last week, but one I want you to understand. It's motivated by love for God, not by love for anything else. Spiritual growth has as its focus, as its vision, its affections, its desire, its love, its admiration for the one like whom it is trying to be. It is motivated by love for God. It wants to be like God because it loves what it sees in God. Now, I'm not going to take the time to show you the scriptural support for that, but I wanted to throw that in to help you see something of the motivation behind spiritual growth. If it is really spiritual growth, it will be motivated by love for God. If it's motivated by anything else, it'll fall by the wayside eventually. It won't last. If your motive is something other than your love for God and a desire to please Him and to be like Him, you'll grow weary in well-doing. Well, then after looking at the essence and object, the importance and some of the characteristics of spiritual growth, we began to consider some evidences of spiritual growth and we got through three of them. The first was this. An evidence of spiritual growth is increased dependence upon God less on self. The mature man is not marked by a growing self-sufficiency, but just the opposite. The more mature a man of God becomes, the more sense he has that he is utterly dependent on God for everything. The more praying you'll see him and hear him doing. Contrary to our generation past who reared us with the macho mentality where men don't cry, men don't feel, men aren't swayed, men don't get zealous and passionate except for fruitless and vain things, men don't pray in front of their children. Contrary to that, the spiritually mighty and mature man is seen frequently on his knees in prayer with his head and his life bowed before the God in whose presence he sees himself as nothing. Increased dependence upon God, less on self. But the second thing we noted as an evidence of spiritual growth is an enlarged concern for God's kingdom. An enlarged concern for God's kingdom. The, mature, the maturing Christian is growing in his perception, in his perspective. He's not so self-centered any longer. He has a, an increased regard for the greater issues of the kingdom of God. His own needs are not all that he cares about. He looks around him and he sees the needs of a greater populace of God's people in the church. He'll defer to their needs. He'll suffer loss for himself so that they may increase in righteousness. He looks beyond them to the community at large and he lives with an increasing sense of spiritual stewardship. He has an eye for the advancement and the glory of the kingdom of God. That's his glory. That's his joy. That's his focus. And that will, if he is growing spiritually, be an enlarging perspective. In the third place we noted as the evidence of spiritual growth, an expanded affection for God's person and presence. An expanded affection for God's person and presence. Marked by more uh, purposeful time in the closet. He loves to be with his God. He loves to meet his God. He's seen as longing for more of God. Not just a freedom from the fear of hell, but to know God, to be close to God, to walk with God. 
Those notable righteous men in the Old Testament, Enoch among them, walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The maturing Christian is a, is a person who grows and continues to increase in his affection for God's person and God's presence. He wants that more and more. He wants other things less and less. And God is good in disciplining us and moving us in that direction by decreasing the delights that this world offers and increasing the benefits to us that he offers in his presence. If you're not experiencing something of an expanded affection for God's person and presence, you're not growing spiritually. But to consider further this subject tonight and to get a bit deeper in the evidences of spiritual growth and then to try to pull this together with applications and implications, consider with me in the fourth place as an evidence of spiritual growth that if a person is growing spiritually, you will see in him a broadened love for his fellow man. A broadened love for his fellow man. He has grown in his affection and concern for God's kingdom, but he also is broadening in his love for other people. Our Father in heaven, the scriptures tell us, is good and kind even to the unholy and the unthankful. There is the benevolent love of God for every one of his creatures. That's why he does good to people who don't give him thanks. That's why many today who are living in blasphemous hatred against God and in rebellion against them continue to be the recipients of good benefits from his hand. He gives them rain and fruitful seasons. He keeps them alive, though they practice things that normally would kill them. Though they play fast and loose with disease and recklessness, God preserves many. Rather than give him thanks for his mercies, though, they presume that this means that there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Therefore, the Bible isn't true when it warns them not to do them. And they take courage in their behavior and get all the more arrogant and puffed up against the God of heaven who warns them. And they get more and more opposed and resistant to us who tell them, please consider your way. Please turn. You're perishing. They think we're holier than thou. They think we're self-righteous. They don't listen to us because nothing seems to be happening negatively to them in their sin. They know that what they're doing is death-worthy if the Bible's true, but they continue to do it and see no fruits of their doings and are emboldened to do more. But God continues to give good things to them. They don't see it. They don't appreciate it. They don't even believe He exists. But he still does it. That's why we say when anyone is healed, God's the one that healed him. Even if he doesn't give glory to God for it, God's the one that did it. That's why he ought to give glory to God for it. That's why it's sin when he doesn't, because it is due to God. When God creates a little baby and fills the hearts of parents who don't believe in him, who have no thought that this child came from the Lord and belongs to the Lord... God gives the hearts of those parents, those unbelieving parents, great joy, a fullness and an exuberance and a delight that you can hardly compare to anything else in the world. And God gives that to them. He doesn't upbraid them and hold over their heads His wrath in its feeling and in its power. He delights to see His creatures enjoy His good things. He's good and kind, even to the unthankful and the unholy. Therefore, his children, if they are growing in conformity to him, will be increasingly that way toward their fellow man. It is not evidence of spiritual growth when a Christian gets tighter and tighter and pulls more and more into himself and becomes more and more like a cloistered monk living among the few who know the truth, resisting any contact or any dealings with the outside threatening world. That is not evidence of spiritual growth. It is a perversion of spiritual growth. The growing man spiritually has a broadening love for all kinds of people, for fellow men. 
He is kind to his next door neighbor who is a blasphemer. When his neighbor's ox falls in the ditch, he goes to help him out. He helps pull his tractor out of its problem. He helps crank his car and jump it. And he's glad to do it. And he shakes the man's hand and says, have a good day. He doesn't feel the pressure of making sure this fellow knows that he's bad and he probably won't have a good day. And if he does have a good day, it won't be because I wished it upon him. He doesn't have this fear that he's doing something wrong by helping and doing good to his neighbor. He grows in his sense of love for men. He sees in in them, though marred and greatly marred, the image of the one uh, like whom he's trying to become. He sees God's image there. He knows that God loves that person. And every time he looks at the person, he has something of compassion in his heart. That's why he doesn't look at a sinner and sneer at him, look down upon him in, in, a, in a false kind of way and resent the guy's existence and walk across the other side of the road as the priest and the Levite did with the man who fell among thieves on the road to Jericho. No, the growing man is, in, is experiencing a broadened love for those whom his father has demonstrated that he loves. In addition to that, the Lord Jesus Christ is that way. He comes to Jerusalem. He looks down upon the city from across the way on the brow of the Mount of Olives. And as he looks out upon Jerusalem and he perceives the marketplace abuzz with all of these people who love their own things and who don't love God, he looks across at the multitudes that are about to pass by his own cross and wag their heads and blaspheme him and say, if you really are the Son of God, come down. And he looks at those people who here today ought to be the first to give him his due, ought to be glad that he gave to them the oracles and the advantages, ought to be giving him praise, welcoming him as God's anointed one, but are rejecting him, ignoring him, and treating him as nothing. He weeps over them. And he in his heart goes out to them and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a mother hen, her little chicks, but you would not. He looked at these very undesirable people at whose hands he himself is about to be slain. And his heart goes out for these who don't worship him and love him. And his heart has great depths of feeling for them. He really desires that they come under his wings and let him bless and honor them and, and favor them and, and perfect them and give good things to them. He desires such. He has a love of benevolence toward them. And it's a love that goes beyond what we even can describe. How much more those that are growing into his image. They will experience if they are spiritually growing more and more like Christ. To have real hearts affections to a broader group of people. To a widening perspective of their fellow man. Now I'm not speaking of fellowship with the world. I'm not suggesting that this spirit ought to be translated into a union movement, an ecumenical movement in which we, in the name of Christian love, join hands with others who do not believe the truth. No, no. God is not in fellowship with the wicked. He does not look with favor upon their sins. He hates what they do. He one day will call them to account and judge them, and all his wrath will be poured out upon them. Nevertheless, there's love there for them. We're not speaking of entering into fellowship with the wicked, ignoring the fact that they're sinners, and pretending that we're all one in the brotherhood of man under the common fatherhood of one God who loves us all in the same way. Not at all. But what we are saying is that the growing Christian is marked by a broadening affection for more people than just his own group, his own color his own language, his own theological perspective. And it also is shown by a Christian's ability to love other Christians who disagree with him in certain areas of doctrine that are not central and crucial to salvation. He is able to pray for them. He is able to pray with them. 
He is able to shake their hands and hug their necks and have good feelings about them. He is able to support them in certain things and work with them in certain areas, though short of perfect union, because he has a growing and a maturing perspective about him. Well, a mark of spiritual growth is a broadened love for fellow man. But in addition to that, there is also another mark of spiritual growth that is crucial to the Christian. And that is this, the maturing Christian, the growing man or woman, has an informed balance between assurance of faith and fear of God. An informed balance, may we say an increasingly informed balance, between assurance of faith on the one hand, and the fear of God on the other hand. It is not God's will that you spend the rest of your days as a Christian dreading the day of judgment, afraid of the coming of Christ, wondering about your salvation, scared of God in a servile sense. It is not God's delight that you live your whole Christian life with some sort of basic shakiness. But the growing Christian is to be one who increases in his assurance of faith. He's to be one who is marked by an increasing confidence that God is able to keep that which is committed to him against that day. He never loses his, his knowledge that he is capable himself of departing from the faith. But he never goes back as a general rule upon his confidence in gospel promise and God's goodness to him. You see, there's this, there's this advantage that the Christian has who understands the gospel. When he becomes free from the servile fear of hell, it's right that a Christian not be afraid of going to hell. You shouldn't be marked if you're growing by a steady or increasing sense of the fears of hell. You ought to be able to say, I'm not afraid that I'm going to hell. God has saved me. I have confidence that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. But on the other hand, you're not to be free, though you are to be free and increasingly free from this servile fear of hell. You're not to be free from a reverential filial fear of God. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to see that principle again, simply put. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, in the very language of spiritual growth. The language of spiritual growth the next to last phrase in the, the verse, perfecting holiness. The present progressive tense verb, an ongoing continual working of perfecting holiness. We are moving toward the conformity to the image of Christ. We are perfecting a continuation of a labor to perfect that which has been begun in conversion. But in that very language, notice the whole verse. Having, therefore, these promises. Now, what were these promises? Chapter 6 has told us. The Lord has commanded us to come out from among the world and be separate. Not geographically separate, but morally and ethically and spiritually separate. And the promise is, if we will touch not the unclean thing, that the Lord will receive us and will be to us a father, and we shall be to him sons and daughters. Now that's a precious promise to us. And it delights our hearts that though we lose the world, we'll get much more in its place. We'll get God Himself as our dear Father. So therefore, having these promises, what ought to be our attitude? Well, first, we're to do something. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. Let us be about the business 
of putting off, as we read in Colossians 3, all those marks of our carnality and putting on all those marks of our spirituality. Let us cleanse ourselves and perfect ongoing holiness. But look at the context in which this is to occur. In the face of these precious promises which make our hearts delight, we are to do this in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Now, I'm not sure any of us can completely explain how all that works together. But it's crucial that we understand that is what the Bible says. The Bible always puts them together. The Bible explains itself, as it were. These things stand together. While we delight on the one hand with a full confidence that coming out of the world, God will be our dear, precious God and Father, we do all of that in a spirit of fear. But you see, it's not the fear that somehow God's going to forget us, that somehow we're going to lose it in the end, that somehow the devil's going to be strong enough to steal us away from him in whose hands we are. Not a servile fear of hell in which we serve God just to keep Him off our backs. In which we do the externals in the church so as to hope that God will see it and favor us and reward us. We're not to be like that. We're free from that. We have precious promises from God. But it is to be a filial fear. The fear of sons. Those that have received the spirit of adoption whereby they cry, Abba, Father in that warm and delicate confidence that their daddy loves them and welcomes them to sit on his lap and ask good things of them. And they have that confidence in the fear of the same one on whose lap they delight to sit with boldness. They come boldly to the throne of grace in fear. They work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But not a servile fear. Not a fear that somehow God's going to change his mind or that they have to measure up to the standard before they can get into the end. But a sonship kind of fear that says, if God has been so good to me, if this kind of holy God with whom there is forgiveness of sins is so kind to me, I dare not offend. I dare not grieve. I dare not quench his spirit. I delight to please him who has saved me unto himself. I delight to do what pleases my father. I believe all, every child I know that's halfway normal comes into the world with an inbred delight to please father and mother. A lot of us, by the time they're three or four, have driven it out of them because we don't ever let them see them pleasing us at all. We have that stern rejection approach to them. But they come into the world longing for daddy to be pleased. Some of them grow up and become 45-year-old men of utterly perverted in all their lives because dad's never said, well done. And they still want him to. And they live their lives trying to get dad's approval everywhere they go. Got a society full of that. Will God's children delight to please their father? As Psalm chapter 2 says, we are to come to him. And this is the beautiful language of Scripture. Rejoicing with trembling. In fact, I do believe that the times in which I've understood this principle the most and the times in which I believe I feared God most properly have been on the, on the, in the wake of the greatest and sweetest benefits He's given to me. Right at the conclusion of the sweetest blessings poured out upon me and the sweetest graces given, those are the times I'm most prone to tremble in the presence of a God. Oh, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who could stand? Oh, what a God would deal it. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. It's evangelical fear. And the maturing Christian is growing in that balance. An informed balance. When he sins, he doesn't go give up the faith because he blew it and failed to keep the whole law of God. Now he must be no good to God. Because he is informed about the nature of gospel salvation. It never was dependent upon his works. 
It never was dependent on his meeting a standard. The standard could never be met by him. It was met by his substitute, Christ Jesus. His faith is all the more in Christ. And his felt need of Christ is stimulated when he falls short of the, of the standard. And he runs back to Christ again and says, Oh Lord, I've done it again. I've failed again. My heart is filled with sin and iniquity. My hope is Christ. That's a maturing Christian. That's not a baby Christian that says that. That's the mature Christian that says that. It's not the fellow that says, you know, when you've been a Christian as long as I have, you don't need to confess as often. That's not the posture of a maturing Christian. Some of you have said to me often in the foyer, you come out and say, oh, what precious things God has spoken to Dad. just wish I felt the more. I heard that several times this morning. I love what we heard, but oh, I wish I loved God more. They ought to have a greater effect on me than they had. Well, that's not the testimony of a basket case Christian. That is not the testimony of just a little baby who's made no progress. That is the testimony that will be an ever-increasing testimony the more you grow in Christ. If you'll read good Christian biographies, you'll find that the greatest giants of the faith that we know about in history were men who were more like that on their deathbed than they were when they were first converted. They would cry out, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. After you could look at a, of a track record of noble feats in the name of Christ. Devotion that far surpassed our generation. And yet the more they grew, the less they felt good about themselves. Their assurance was never based on their performance. And the more they have an informed view of the gospel, they have on the one hand a calm sense of God's goodness and provision in Christ when they fail. On the other hand, a trembling sense of filial fear of a God that is so good. Read through your New Testament. Read through the Psalms. Look for the principle of the fear of sonship marking those who are growing in grace. No, it's not something to be dreaded that you're beginning to think that you're not much. The more you think that, the more evidence is that you're growing. But that doesn't mean that that thinking you're not much is to be marked by curling back from God. You see, here's what the babe does. When he fails, he quits praying for three or four days or three or four weeks. He backs off. He closes the book because I don't deserve to read the Bible. He comes to church and he can't get his mind off his sin. He sits there and thinks how bad he is. Misses half the sermon. Sings under his breath. He doesn't worship because he feels he's unworthy to worship. Well, you ought always to feel that you're unworthy to worship. If you had a good perspective about what your heart's really like, you'd never feel that you were worthy to worship. You never are supposed to worship because you finally measured up to a standard for a few days, and now you can worship. Our worship is rooted in Christ. We bring our sacrifices through Christ. And the more we know of our sin, the more Christ will be precious as our mediator. And the bolder we will worship. Your boldness doesn't grow out of achieved perfection. Your boldness grows out of informed knowledge of the Word of God in Christ that says to sinners, Come and I'll be your God. And so with that kind of perspective... You find yourself more and more understanding the balance between the filial fear of a righteous father who's forgiven your sins and the delightful assurance of a saint who has confidence that God's going to perfect that which he began in him in the beginning. Well, I want to move on. Not only is there this broadened love for fellow man and an informed balance between the assurance of faith and the fear of God in the maturing Christian, but also, the maturing saint shows a demonstrated mastery over gross and debilitating sins. If you are growing in grace, there will be an obvious demonstrated mastery over gross and debilitating sins. If you are growing in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will not be under the bondage of the same debilitating sins that had you in their grip 20 years ago. 
Now, mark me carefully. I did not say necessarily that if you have been in bondage to a debilitating, besetting sin for 20 years, there's no way you can be saved. That's not necessary. It is possible for a Christian to fall under the sway of besetting sin for a long period of time. It is not possible, however, for a growing Christian to do so. A growing Christian demonstrates that growth by a developed and increasing mastery over those gross and debilitating sins. And I would say you either have to get after the business of growing, which includes putting off all those things that we read in Colossians 3, or you may check the roots of your profession to see if you have the root of the matter in you. It's very possible that you never were saved. If a debilitating gross sin has never been attacked yet and made a dent in by you, if it still rages in its fullness that it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago, look at the heart of the matter. But it may be that it's a matter of growth and the absence of growth that's produced it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now here is an apostle. He has no lack of Christian assurance. There's not a man that's wondering if he's going to make it to the end. He doesn't go through the process every day of checking his salvation to see if he's saved and doubting it. He's not, he's not uh, uh, characterized by persistent and consistent and regular seeking of counsel from older Christians to tell him whether he's really saved. Here's the Apostle Paul who is persuaded that Christ is able to keep what he's committed to him against that day. Who's anticipating heaven. Who expects to go to heaven and be glorified. And yet... In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, here's what he says about himself. In the midst of spiritual growth and the Christian ministry, he says, I buffet my body and bring it into bondage. You see the contrast between my body bringing me into bondage and my bringing it into bondage. I buffet my body and I bring it into bondage, lest by any means... After that I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway, a reject, a reprobate. Now you see several strands going through what this verse. He is cognizant of the possibility of his falling from his own steadfastness. He's well aware of the danger of apostasy. In, his, in himself, no less, the gifted usable, fruitful apostle who has a string of church planting behind him, who is writing holy writ, who has seen visions in the presence of God, who has spoken in languages which he never studied. Here's a man who knows things that most of us have never experienced, saying, lest I, when I preach to others, become reprobate. There's something I do. I make it a regular practice to do it. It's a mark of my life to do it. What is it? I buffet my body. Bruise it. I bring it into bondage. I keep it under. I make my body my servant, not vice versa. Why? Because if I don't, I'm a reject. I'll slip from my own steadfastness. I'll not be prepared for judgment myself. Not be on the shelf of Christian service, a Christian but no longer needed by God's ministry, no. But a reject in the presence of God, non-Christian, thrown aside, no longer deemed to be faith, a man of faith. Now how does he prevent it from happening? Not by lying on his bed on Saturday morning bemoaning how low a state he's in and how bad a Christian is. This man is awful lot of time reminding everybody how bad he is. He does confess that he's the chief of sinners, but he doesn't talk as though he's just continuing never to make any progress in any area. He says things like I labored more abundantly than they are. Than they are. He's not ashamed of calling a spade a spade. And he says, nevertheless, not I, but the grace of Christ that was with me. 
He's not a man who's debilitated constantly by self-doubt and self-beating down. And I'm nothing and I'm unworthy. Why should I even get up? Lord, help me. That's not the sound that comes out of this man's heart. He's a man that has great confidence to God who says to these same Corinthians in the second epistle, Christ always makes us the triumph. And yet, lest he prove reprobate, Beats it into submission. The maturing Christian is marked by an increasing mastery over the gross and debilitating sins that would kill his soul. I'm not suggesting that he's not mastering the, the lesser gross sins, but there is this tendency among us to get a lot of things right and to leave this one thing untouched over here. And to think that it, in our case, it can be an exception. We sort of build a little hedge around it. And we say, well, Lord, I'm, I can't give it up, but I'll isolate it. I'll do good in all the rest. And surely just for one sin, you're not going to condemn me. And we really live a life that is a masterpiece of deception. We spend our time trying to make sure nobody catches us. And finds out what we really are doing. It's especially true in the thought life true in home life when the rest of the church doesn't see us. And let me tell you, if you're growing in Christ, there will be a growing and increasing mastery over those things. If there's not evidence of that, you're not growing. And you need to ask some questions. If the Apostle Paul has to buffet his body, how much more you and I? And you see, love for Christ drives you to fight against such things. It forces you to honor him who has honored you with his favor and you dread doing anything that would break his heart. And this gross debilitating sin is not so much a concern of yours because it makes you look bad to yourself in the mirror, but because it is contrary to him who called you to holiness and it grieves his heart. Not to mention the fact that it endangers your very soul. I say to some of you who have made no progress on some of these things against you that have fought your heart over the years, you're not growing in grace. That's the problem. You're not growing. Well, you say, Pastor, let's just admit for a minute that some of these evidences are not in me. I don't see that I have increased in my sense of dependence on God. I don't notice that I have an enlarged concern for God's kingdom. I'm still locked into my own little perspective. I don't see an expanded affection for God's person and presence. I'm more concerned about feeling good and getting good vibes from preaching than I am knowing that God's my God. And that pro that's proven in the fact that as soon as I'm gone from church, I have no real desire to get into my closet and pray and read my Bible. It's just hard. I don't really love the presence of God. I don't know about the presence of God. I'm not marked by that. I don't have a broadened love for fellow men. I don't see an increasingly informed balance between assurance of faith on the one hand and the fear of God on the other. And certainly, Pastor, there's not a demonstrated mastery over some of these gross and debilitating sins. So what do I do? Well, if you lack evidence of growth in grace, let me suggest that you do the following. First of all, discern the root of the matter. There's one of two things wrong. You've either failed to attend those things that would be accompanying growth. You've got a problem in your discipline. You've got a problem in your perspective. You've got a problem in your application. And a problem in the use of your time. Some, some area of life and habit or a collection of those things has short-circuited your growth. Or you're not saved. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other of those. I mean, it's one of those two, but it doesn't have to necessarily be that you're not saved. I don't want to throw some of you back into the old dither again. Where you've got some nagging sin over here and you just can't. You see, the growing Christian sees nagging sins and does something about them. He buffets his body. He does what's necessary to kill it. If he doesn't do what's necessary to kill it, it does what's necessary to kill him the only two options he has and he, he may deceive himself for a time but it's the sin's going to win if he doesn't kill it put to death therefore 
put off, put away. Discern the root of the matter. Let me suggest that if these things are present, you may have confidence that you're a Christian who simply needs to accelerate and deal with his growing. Faith in Christ alone, is that where your faith is? Or have you been depending upon yourself and your obedience and your law-keeping and your, your good graces to save you? That's one of the reasons you can't make progress over some of these debilitating sins. God will not give you progress because you're not looking to Christ. Your motivation is to get yourself up to snuff, up to God's standards. You feel that God would love you more if you did better. That God would accept you more fully and you'd be saved a bit more securely if you do better. So your motive is to conquer this debilitating sin so God will like you more. And God simply will not honor that motive. So you make a little short-term progress on that sin and you say, Oh, now I'm getting up to become a good Christian. And God says, No, you missed the point. Pulls the rug out again. And down you go. Ring any bells? I wasn't born yesterday. And some of you live this way. You make great efforts and you make a lot of progress and you start saying, hey, I think I got the key now. Why does that, why does the Lord let the devil do that? Why doesn't the Lord answer your prayers? Why can't you make progress over this thing? Why does your temper keep winning? Why does your belly keep winning? Why does your filthy mind keep winning? Well, it may be that your whole focus and effort at debilitating those sins is wrongly motivated. You may be hoping in yourself. Your salvation may still be salvation by works. And God's simply not interested in promoting it. And he'll short-circuit that. He wants you to run to Christ, and he will not let you get any place else very far. He is, he is shutting you up to Christ. My dear friend, you're not going to get saved by your strenuous efforts at mortification. I'm sorry. You're not going to make it because you conquered the sin. You'll make it because Christ conquered the sin. Or you'll not make it. That's why the table of the Lord is a giving of thanks. A receiving of the benefits of salvation, not an achieving of the benefits of salvation. Faith in Christ alone marks a saved sinner who may not be growing as he should. And not only faith in Christ alone, but appreciation for the glories of Christ alone. Is it Christ's glory you're after? Or is it your glory? I quit smoking. I quit cussing. I've really made progress. I remember a time when I couldn't push away from the table. But boy, I've mastered that thing. I'm the picture of discipline today. And I'll tell you what else. Just saying and tacking the words on the end, God's grace, God be the glory, doesn't necessarily mean that's where your heart is. Any more than saying thy will be done necessarily means that you really want God's will to be done. Discern the root of the matter. Faith in Christ alone. Appreciation for the glories of Christ alone. You have no delight in yourself. And you know that if you conquer the debilitating sins, and if you grow in grace and get mastery over these nagging problems in your life, you know still you'll be a sinner. You'll still need the grace of God. You'll still depend on the blood of Christ. You're not going to be any more in favor of God than you were when you started. You're either justified or you're not justified. But your growth is vitally dependent on your debilitating these sins before they debilitate you. Well, I want to draw some quick implications before we come to the table of the Lord. The whole concept of spiritual growth in the first place eliminates perfectionism. The very fact that we have to grow assumes we're not there yet. And the very fact that this commandment comes to all kinds of Christians, the little ones, the babies, and the mature ones, means that nobody's there yet and never has going to get there till we reach glory. 
So get rid of your thoughts that somehow in this lifetime you're going to arrive. And certainly get rid of any thoughts that you have that cannot be compatible with the commandments of Scripture that stand to every Christian. Grow. Grow. The maintenance of a standard is not growth. Some of you still think that if you get up to a certain standard that our church requires and maintain it, that that's, you're okay. The commandment of Scripture is grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not reach the standard where the church approves. Not get to a particular place where you now deserve to be a deacon or a pastor. Nobody ever does deserve. Not to get to a standard where the church sees, hey, there's a spiritual man. That's not the goal, is it? Wasn't the essence of spiritual growth to be like Christ? Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Get rid of the thoughts of perfection. That's a goal that will not be reached until heaven. While we're here, we're to grow. Well, let me add quickly. Some of you do not need to be exhorted to grow in grace. I don't mean to drag you down. I, I, I want you to understand this sermon is not primarily meant for you. You're already striving to grow. You grieve that you're not growing. You're longing to grow. Your big problem is you don't think you are growing. This is not primarily for you. Some of you do need the exhortation to grow in grace because because you haven't done much about it in a long time. But some of you don't need so much to be told, grow in grace. What you need is to learn how to grow in grace. You need to understand the reason for growth is not to get you in favor with God, but on the ground of being accepted by God, now you want to become more and more like the one that's accepted you. But in the final analysis, you never can measure your growth by anybody else's progress. If you grow more than they do, you may get proud. If you grow less than they do, you may go into despair. Don't compare yourself to others. And the implications of that are widespread. If we quit comparing with one another, we'll quit, we'll quit lording it over each other, and we'll quit bowing in the presence of each other. We'll give room for others to grow. We'll be forbearing and forgiving and loving and peaceable. We won't be judging our brothers so quickly. We won't be so critical of people who aren't up to our perceived standard, and we won't be vulnerable to the great pride that thinks we're further along than they are when we really aren't. Remember, the more mature you get, the less mature you think you are. My heart recoils within me and shrinks back from every testimony of a child of God that sounds as though he is no longer in need of the Word of God or the discipline of the Word of God. It scares me. Well, at least, Pastor, I've grown past that problem. That's the very next problem you're going to have, my friend. You're going to fall. Let him that thinketh he standeth in any area take heed. Don't you presume upon God in your pride. Humble yourself. You may well fall right back into a sin that you haven't thought of committing in 20 years. Pride goeth before destruction. Well, I hasten to quite finish this so that we may come to the Lord's table. A mature man has an increasing sense of sinfulness and unworthiness. He desires to be delivered more from his sin in general than just in particular. Any sin bothers him. He just doesn't, he doesn't want to be a sinner. It's sin in principle that he hates and dreads, not just any particular sin that he's picked out. He loves God. He wants to be like God. He wants to have God, not just what God can give him. He's not like the babe who's unstable, changeable, easily depressed, frightened, discouraged, undiscerning, without understanding, vulnerable to every wind of doctrine, self-centered, exhibitionistic, giving an account constantly of ourselves and our progress. Focusing upon our achievements and attainments or upon the lack thereof. He's not preoccupied either with his successes or his failures. He's not one who's marked by preferring the exciting and the spectacular, having itching ears. The maturing man grows in a stability 
of being content with the means of grace that God has provided him and giving himself steadily and daily and regularly to those means. Now, I'm omitting some things, but I want to bring it quickly to a head. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And this is the how-to part of the sermon. How do you grow in grace? There's only one way. You diligently and regularly give yourself to the means of grace. Grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? You attend diligently and regularly those things God has given to the church by which she may grow. They include the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, prayer, all the ordinances. And this is one of them. Christ has given this ordinance as a means of spiritual growth. And we are to attend to this means diligently. With a whole heart. And he has promised that when we do, we will be rewarded. If you rightly come to the Lord's Supper, rightly receive the Lord's Supper, you'll grow in grace. If you do not, you, won't, you will not. You understand that? Some of you have never thought about that. This isn't just an exercise of warm feelings. This is a means of grace. If, which, if you attend them, you'll grow in them. So I exhort you, I encourage you, attend the Lord's Supper properly so you may grow thereby as well as all the other ordinances. Brethren, let me just say it. I'm, some of you have no chance of growing until you make it your aim to be so prepared for Sunday morning that you don't sleep through half this service. Some of you will not grow in grace if you keep showing up at one minute after nine o'clock. Not only is it rude when you walk in and, and interrupt the rest of us, it shows you've not been prepared to get here on time. It's one thing to have that happen once in a while. It happens to all of us. Something else if it's a pattern. If it's a pattern, we beg of you for your own soul's sake and for our attendance and attention's sake, get here on time. It's, we're talking about ten minutes difference, basically. Get your kids to the potty before you bring them in here. So that at the time we start, they're coming out of the bathroom. That's not the time for them to be coming out of there. They ought to be in their seats at least five minutes before we start. At least. But that shows a general spirit that isn't attending diligently to the means of grace. It shows you don't expect much to happen. It shows you don't think you have to prepare. Some of your Saturday nights are killing your Sunday mornings. It's one of the reasons that Sunday nights are often much more blessed than Sunday mornings because you're not prepared Sunday mornings as much as you are after you've had some rest Sunday afternoon because you're not getting enough rest Saturday night. You've got to diligently attend the means of grace. Well, let me just read one thing from the larger catechism as we come to the Lord's table. What is required of them that received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it. It is required of them that received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately mediate, meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, Trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Well, that's a large mouthful. 
but it simply means that all that's within your redeemed humanity is to be exercised and diligently brought to the Lord's Supper so that you may receive it rightly to the growth of your own soul in grace. Grow in grace by attendance rightly to the means of grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by learning His Word, letting it dwell within you richly by daily attendance to it and more careful attendance to it in public. Dear brethren, if we will do these things diligently, we will be a growing people. If we do not do them diligently, we will not grow. And then there's the question as to the root of the matter in us. Well, just before we approach the table, let me say one word to you who may be sitting among us for whom growth is not the primary problem. Growth is not the issue for you. You cannot grow in Christ because you do not live in Christ. That which is dead cannot grow. What you need is to run to Christ and turn to Christ and ask Him to have mercy upon you and to save you from your sins so that you may grow in Him. The words of growth are not appropriate to you until you are in Christ. Let me simply urge you as you observe this congregation, come to the Lord's table to take these elements in gratitude to the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for their sins. If you have not embraced Him with a whole heart of faith and believed upon Him as your Redeemer, as even as you observe us following His ordinance, ask Him to come, forgive your sins, be your Lord and Savior, set you free, and make you His, so you too with us can move toward heaven and glory and conformity with Christ. Look at what you are. You're just the opposite of what God made you to be. You're not like Christ at all. You're more like the devil. You worship your own idols. You live for yourself. And it is that from which God wants to save you and command you to turn. Come to Christ. And as you observe our observance of the Lord's Supper, let the truth of Christ's death for sinners come near into your heart and turn to Him and ask His mercy upon you. Please pray with